Let us pray. Father God, much like these brothers, we are leaderless if we're not led by you. And so I pray that you meet us this morning through the preached word, through the power of your spirit, protect us from falsehood, and let us hear a good word from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we covered the first 28 verses of chapter 42. And so we read back a little bit, but we discovered, as even I just mentioned in prayer, a leaderless 10 brothers who still hadn't dealt with the sin of 20 years earlier against Joseph. And in Egypt, they found no peace in that first visit. Even though that actually the grace of God was being extended to them, they were having mercy extended to them beyond their comprehension before the veiled face of the favored son of Israel. Their eyes were blind to see it. They kept calling that which was good and generous and gracious. They kept calling it evil. They were actually, in one sense, fault finders towards God and his providence, rather than entrusting themselves to the God of all providence. And so we pick up this morning with the brothers last week, only having so far discovered silver in a single brother's bag. And yet they have convinced themselves through finding that, that silver that God has cursed them, even though they carry bags full of grain and unbeknownst to them, bags full of silver. And while the brothers were guilty of gross wickedness in Egypt, the real wickedness was not, of course, the stealing of grain. Of that charge, they would be innocent, but it was in their sins against the one who gave them that grain and returned to them their silver. The one whom their eyes cannot see, that favored son of Israel. And now as they walk, they continue to walk back to Canaan. The parallels remain. Brothers enriched while another brother was left to Egypt, enriched by silver. Will they allow themselves to remain enriched at the expense of their brother? Or will they seek to free the brother, this time being Simeon, left in Egypt, left in chains? These were just some of the questions left for the nine remaining brothers. And yet Joseph, who in wisdom orchestrated this plan, knew they had to return. For the famine still had six years to go in Egypt under Joseph's appointed lordship controlled the grain supply. These brothers, whether they wanted to or not, will one day be made to face the Lord of Egypt and the sins against him once more. And so from verses 29 to 34, the nine remaining sons return home and begin to relay the trip's events to Jacob. Yet the self-proclaimed honest brothers lie in recounting certain key details of their trip to the father which resembles, of course, the pattern of 20 years earlier when they deceived Jacob on the matter of Joseph. The brothers don't acknowledge, for instance, the fact that Joseph said if they were found to be liars, he would kill them in judgment. Rather, the brothers make it seem as if all that is in question is whether they can be favored as merchants in Egypt or considered spies. And the deception seems to be going fairly well from verses 29 to 34. Jacob rises raises no clear objection at that time. And then the air of believability is sucked out of the room, and it's destroyed in an instant as the silver 
before the face of the father is discovered in each and every one of the brother's bags. Jacob's sons had left home yet again, and they have returned to their father once more, lacking a brother. But having gained for themselves extra silver, they could not account for. And in this revelation, they once again are cast into fear. And for Jacob, this is a coincidence beyond belief. And Jacob, at this point, he is just, he is, does not want to hear it anymore. I would have to guess that 20 years of suspicion are boiled over into this moment. And he now makes clear that he believes both his favorite son, Joseph, but now also Simeon has died through some scheme of these brothers. He reaches out in anger, I mean, lashes out in anger and frustration. He declares, my son Joseph is no more, my son Simeon is no more, and now you want me to trust you with Benjamin? Jacob, in seeing the silver, has convinced himself of the worst. He too, like the brothers were found last week, sees the generous graciousness of the moment, of God's generous providential hand of the moment, and doubts it. He now must, in his eyes, have two dead sons, and yet, of course, those two sons are not dead. It actually, the silver foreshadowed a foretaste of the greater blessing and mercy to come, ushered in by this favored son of Israel, Joseph, upon the covenant household. God has been working out everything for good, and yet they keep calling it bad. Jacob just didn't have eyes ready to see this work of God's ultimate triumphant love in this moment due to his doubts. The bitterness of doubts and finding faults is a poison to us all when it comes to seeing the blessings of God. The anger of what it seemed to be to Jacob got the best of him in this moment. His passion boiled over into finally directly accusing the sons of wrongdoing. And so Jacob refuses to give these nine brothers the remaining son in whom he is well pleased, Benjamin. And then the eldest brother, Reuben, the brother in whom sought mercy for Joseph 20 years earlier and yet did not have the courage nor the wisdom to see it through, speaks up. And he speaks up in a way that is in one sense rightly criticized by theologians. He offers a terrible idea. In desiring to make amends, and desiring to make it right, because he as the elder brother, it would have uniquely fallen upon him some of this guilt that every time he seems to go out with the brothers, one does not fails to come back. And he also has the sin of Billah, if we remember from earlier in the Genesis narrative against Jacob, and the sins of not being able to honor Joseph and to have the courage to defend him in the critical hour. And he speaks up. And he speaks up with a terrible idea. He offers the lies of his two sons in order to hopefully redeem and restore the covenant family, to, to be a, a vouchsafe, as one sense, as we're going to hear more, for his promissory for bringing back Simeon, to going back down to Egypt, to bring back Simeon. He promises the lives of his two sons for Benjamin. And of course, it's a bad idea because why would Jacob want to take the life of his two grandsons if Reuben could not honor his promise? There, there would be no desire of this. Actually, there are parallels in this offer of, one sense, the senselessness of Jephthah from the books of Judges, but even Lot, if you think about Lot 
in Sodom when he offered his two daughters. The offer itself was still sinful. It wasn't a worthy offer, but it's an offer he makes. But I will say this one thing to commend Reuben. Maybe I've grown too sympathetic of him going through this narrative. I think he's a unique individual in Scripture. He has the courage to offer his sons to help restore the covenant family. And there is a degree of nobility in that. There is a degree that that is the struggle that Jacob right now is being made to face, and he's not willing to face. He's not willing to offer the one son in whom he loves to Egypt. There are so many moments in Scripture that talk about the the son and the importance of the son. We saw that in the book of Ruth. We see that all throughout Genesis, the question of life and death for a son. We see that in Adam. We see that in Abel. We see that in Abraham offering Isaac up the mountain. We see that in Isaac and in Esau and Jacob. We see that in Joseph. We see it in Jacob here. Here's the question. Will he offer the son? Reuben is willing to put his sons forward, but Jacob is not. Jacob will not do likewise with Benjamin. He refuses to surrender Benjamin to Egypt, declaring that in doing so, it could send him to the grave in sorrow. And it's at this moment, I think we can find room for application in our own lives within this text. You know, for most of us, we want the Bible to be like a cookbook. You know, a cookbook may be that we have a favorite recipe that is ourselves that we kind of want to keep pretty much the same. We just, we want the Bible to add a few spices, a few ingredients to complement the people that we are naturally speaking. Problem is the Bible tells us the people that we are naturally speaking are dead in their sins and trespasses, and we have to become new creations. We have to have a radical change. We have to be willing to embrace a radical degree of faith a faith that requires great sacrifice. We have a God who knows the things that are idols, that are the things that we do not want touched by God or manipulated by God. And God says, but I require that of you. Because he desires to shape us. He desires to grow us. He desires to fully mold us. Even think about this idea of self-sacrifice in the sense of parenthood is a call to sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Part of the reason of culture today, what we don't want to talk about, we want to talk about a lot of other things, is the fact that we as a culture have failed to largely uphold the sacrifices of parenthood. And yet we know that when it comes to the outlook of children, involvement of the parents, sacrifices of the parents, laying down one's life for another is something that God blesses. And changes. Jacob in this moment had fallen into the same trap his father Isaac had. He had continued establishing sons he preferred against all others. He should have known firsthand how terrible that sin was in the family of his youth. He still continues in his idolatry in this way, stating to his other sons, you can't have Benjamin in order to get back my son Simeon. You can't have my favored son. Jacob refuses to have a moment of faith akin to his grandfather, Abraham. And so the narrative moves into Genesis chapter 44. 
Roughly a year's worth of time has passed. Simeon still in prison by Jacob's lack of faith. And the food the brothers received in Egypt has now been spent. And another harvest season has come and gone without hope of the famine lifting. Remember, when we are talking about this covenant family of God, we're actually talking about a family that was, for the region, a great group of ranchers in one sense. They had one of the largest ranches in the region. And the stubborn refusal of Jacob to offer up his son to Egypt would have no doubt been costing the family livestock by this point probably every day. Animals dying left and right. People soon would follow. Yet Jacob kept putting off what needed to be done, putting off the hard call in order to be the faithful patriarch of the family. He refused to submit to God and his sovereign plans, and it costs him dearly. And so Jacob, seeing the problem before him in verse 2, tries to encourage the brothers to go to Egypt to buy food, as if he's forgotten. But they have been warned not to return to Egypt without Benjamin in tow. Now, one of the most amazing things I think about this passage is the fact that these brothers' families are starving. They're at great loss to themselves. They're losing things. <laughs> and actually, in one sense, in the face of such hardship, you could almost understand if they had just decided to, ironically so, carry off Benjamin to Egypt. They could have just grabbed him. The nine could have overwhelmed him and empowered him. And you'd almost be like, yeah, that seems reasonable. You were starving to death. They don't do it. Actually, there's this beautiful reality where actually these brothers are finally respecting Jacob and his patriarchal authority. A question, a problem that has been seen throughout the narrative of the text in Genesis. And so Judas speaks up. He speaks up in this moment. Well, as the flocks dwindle and the family continues to suffer, and he draws a line in the sand, and the line that Judah draws is a good line, a line that honors the family line of the patriarchs. And in so doing, the son, whom when he was born from Leah, had a special blessing pronounced over him of being uniquely dedicated to God, is shown finally in obedient service to God. And it's in this moment Judas steps forward, reminding his father once more the situation is far more complicated than just simply going down into Egypt. As Judas states, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. Basically, Judah is saying, our fate rests, rests in your headship. And how does Jacob respond? Well, first note the fact that this passage changes. It's now calling him Israel. It's now identifying his patriarchal name given by God. But yet, Jacob's responding with his old sins. What's Jacob's name mean? If you remember, his name means deceiver. And he's actually berating his sons that his sons would not lie to and deceive. This Lord of Egypt, why didn't you lie to him? Why did you tell him about Benjamin? He's mad. He's in this moment of struggle, falling back, reverting to those old patterns of sin. Oh, how we often can regress into old patterns of sin. It's always so ugly when we do. And they rear their 
head in our lives once more. And that's what's happening for Jacob in this moment. And in the weakness of Israel, the son of Judah, in verse 8, he steps up and he assumes this new leadership role of the family. He refuses to dishonor his father, unlike Reuben, who a few months earlier offered his two sons as a vouchsafe for Benjamin. And Judah offers himself as a promise to his father that Benjamin will live through him and not die. And if Judah cannot deliver on the promise of being about saved for the life of Benjamin, then the guilt of Benjamin's life will fall squarely on him, Judah. Judah, from whom the Messiah would ultimately come, declares, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. Salvation for the entire household of this covenant family is being promised through Judah. This is such an amazing moment for Judah. He previously had a unique role in bartering and harming Joseph, selling him for his own gain, and now he lays his life down on the line as a vouchsafe for the son in whom his father loves. So Judah was willing to do something Reuben was not. He was willing to exchange his own life for the life of another. And this truth is timeless, and this truth is a truth with eternal significance. Nothing changes lives faster than another person being willing to sacrifice their life on behalf of another. This is the fullness of that illustration of even parenthood. And in the balance of those selfless kinds of sacrifices or lack thereof, so goes the churches, so goes the families, so goes the community, so goes the nations. And so we should always be asking ourselves as a community of faith, how willing are we to deny ourselves, to give of ourselves for the sake of others? This kind of denial in the interest of self for the blessing of others is nothing less than the patterned command of Christ take up our cross on behalf of others. And so we should always be asking ourselves, have we allowed ourselves to be offered unto God for the sake of others? But actually this passage had another interesting allusion to it. One that as a pastor, I could not help. This idiom and how it's said, how Judah says, I will be basically, I will take the blame for him, is used throughout the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, if you don't know, is basically during the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Several chapters, chapter 3, 30, I have to go look at my notes, but there's several chapters in Ezekiel. Let me reference them because it is scripture. Chapter, hold on, let me catch up to my notes. Chapter 3, chapter 20, and chapter 33, for example, this idiom is used in the book of Ezekiel, a vouchsafe. And yet it's God using it to call out the teachers and preachers of Israel, the prophetic arm of Israel, basically saying to them, you would not warn them of their sins. You would not warn them of their wickedness. You refuse to be a vouchsafe for them. I know that people have left this church because of the topics that we preach, because of the warnings that we will share of Scripture. I've had people tell me, but 
in Ezekiel, God actually says, the blood of that, their blame falls uniquely on your head. Realize that if we, as we continue to fall into a world that has a more patterned desire to self-destruct and to tell God, basically, we hate your ways, we hate your statutes, we hate that which you proclaim, we hate your truth. The loving response is not to say, okay, I surrender. I surrender. I won't tell you anymore. I won't let you know what is true anymore. I'll let you define your truth. You know, the sad state of America is this, in large part. We will allow corporations and companies to preach to us far sooner than a preacher to preach to us. How pathetic is that? You want Target and Coca-Cola and Apple and all these companies and PayPal to preach to you about what is good and what is true. But you're unwilling to hear from the word of God and to say, that's my vouchsafe. I trust in the Lord and his word and his ways. Oh, the shame. Oh, the shame. Remember, Christians, in our collective witness to the world, it is not loving to distort truth so that truth will not offend. It is also not loving to withhold truth either. You are not being a vouchsafe for someone if you continue on to that, in that pattern. No, there are warnings of Scripture that the blame could fall in such individuals' heads. And in response, returning to the text, to the faithful promised word of Judah, how does Israel respond? Israel responds to Judah's offer by allowing himself to go in faith in the promise of Judah. And then Jacob, the patriarch, known as Israel, sends the brothers out. First, with an array of items that, if you notice, many of them are the same kinds of items that Joseph was sent down to Egypt from. We noticed when Joseph was sent to Egypt, he was sent with the items for Egyptian burial, but also at great cost to himself. Jacob sends things like fruits of the land, honey, nuts, and almonds. It's a famine. There's a famine going on now. He's had incredible value as you're starving. And yet, he sends that down into Egypt. And then he sends an overpayment of silver, hopefully to rectify this grace that they don't understand that was extended to them, what they believe was an oversight by this Egyptian authority, allowing his, the brothers to keep the silver. Then last of all, the father of Israel finally shows the faith worthy of a patriarch in sending his one son, his only son, in whom he uniquely loves at this moment, down into Egypt in fear of his death so that the covenant family of God might have light. And it's amazing how he sends him. The Bible says the word should die 48 times, I believe, in the Hebrew. It says that the full name El Shaddai seven times in the scriptures, five in the book of Genesis, one in the book of Exodus, one in the book of Ezekiel. El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the name God gave himself when he establishes his covenant with Abraham and Genesis chapter 17. El Shaddai is the name in which Isaac first blessed Jacob, thinking he was Esau, but 
he used again that name, that personal name that his father had received and extended the blessing to Jacob. El Shaddai was the name that God used for himself. And we actually preached on this passage a year and a day ago from today. I know because I preached on it the day after Ed's funeral, which was June 12th of last year. But the name when Jacob thought he was going to lose his family, his whole family was going to die, he believed, at the hands of Esau. God came to him and said, I am El Shaddai. I'm protecting. He receives the blessing of God after fighting and wrestling with God. And now Jacob uses the name El Shaddai. He prays and prays in the name of El Shaddai. And what does that name mean? There's so much in that name, but it basically wrapped up in it is the sovereign providential power of God. Jacob's basically saying to God, you are a God who controls all things. And I trust in you and your promises. And so I put it in your hands. You know, I make no apologies for believing in a sovereign God, but one of the nice things about believing in a sovereign God is I've seen God's sovereign hands in people's lives. And while a lot of people want to argue against it, fight against the idea that God is a God of providence, God is a God of control, God is a God of sovereignty. At some point, if you are a believer, he's going to meet you in this life and you're going to be forced to surrender to him and his will and his sovereign hand. And that's where Jacob is at this moment. He has to just entrust in faith this son and whom he loves to go down into Egypt and to somehow come back to him. And so he does. He knows the providential, the powerful name of El Shaddai. And we, likewise, of the greater favored son, the one whom came down through the line of Judah, the one who rose from the dead, who defeated the grave, who was betrayed by one that he once called a brother for a few pieces of silver. Christ our Lord, we have a greater name, Christian. We have a greater name of God's sovereign hand to cry out to because we there's no more veil before us on who the true son of Israel is. We no longer need to be blinded to who El Shaddai is. El Shaddai is our Lord. And our Lord has come in the fullness of humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And so in the hard moments, when God reaches out and tries to meddle with recipes you don't want him to meddle with, to add to things, to change things radically in your life, to cause you to live in greater love and service of him and sacrifice of him, call out to the name of our good and gracious Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him and his ways. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we all come to you with areas of pride, areas of rebellion, areas where we do not want to hear the vouchsafe that is your word speaking into our lives. We don't want to trust in you. We want to control our own plan. Allow us in greater God-given faith to hand our lives over to you and to your will. Help us to be guided more by the power of your spirit rather than our sinful flesh. Help us to love and to serve one another. Help us to step in and to have the courage to speak a better word to those around us. Help us to not draw back in fear, to tremble at that which you call as good. We thank you.
for the name above every name, the El Shaddai, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom name, whose name we pray. Amen.